So we come back once again this morning to our study in Ephesians here in the second chapter. As I've already stated several times in this study, Paul spends the first portion of the letter declaring how our salvation is all due to God's great love and grace. He wants us, his readers, to be rooted and grounded in the love of God and the grace that flows from that love. So here in these verses, he continues to magnify the grace of God by reminding us of how deep the pit was that God's love pulled us out of. What Paul does in this passage is to paint a vivid picture between what man is by nature and what he can become by grace. And so today we're going to focus on what man is, what all of us are by nature. And Paul tells us about that in the first three verses. So we'll look together at these three verses. Let me read them to you once again. And you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So remember, I shared with you that Paul is like, he's like an artist. And he's, he's wanting to paint a picture of the glorious grace of God in all of its beauty, in all of its brightness. But in order to magnify the grace, he first starts with this darkened backdrop, this black background. He starts by reminding us of our true condition. The Bible is problematic for people for several reasons, but really primarily because the Bible doesn't flatter men. The Bible really speaks straightforwardly about our depravity, about our sinfulness, about our wickedness. And of course, people don't like to hear that about themselves. And so that's one of the reasons why we find so much opposition to the scriptures in the world around us. Jesus himself noted this. He said, the world hates me because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. And that is indeed true about the scripture in general. And so Paul here he gives us this portrait, but it's not of some particularly decadent tribe or degraded segment of society, or even of the extremely corrupt paganism of his own day. No, this is the biblical diagnosis of fallen man in fallen society everywhere and for all time. In other words, this, the Bible says this is, this is everybody. 
And this is how it's always been. It's always been the case that we are, as, as human beings, we, we come into this world dead in trespasses and sins, and we are the children of wrath by nature. So Paul breaks it down for us here. He says, first of all, and you who were dead in trespasses and sins. Trespasses and sins. It seems that Paul carefully chose these two words to give a comprehensive account of human evil. There's a distinction in these words. The word trespass, the Greek word, means a false step. That's the actual meaning of the word. And the idea is uh, that it involves either the crossing of a known boundary or a deviation from the right path. So with the, with the word trespass or the word transgression, similar word, the idea is a willful crossing over of a boundary that God has set. So it, it's, a, it's a willful disobedience to the, the, the revealed uh, will, will of God. It's a trespass. It's a transgression. The second word, the word sin or sins here, it's plural, is the Greek word hamartia. And this is the word that really is a word that describes missing the mark or coming short of the standard, falling short of the standard. And so the Bible tells us all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The standard is perfection. The standard is actually Jesus Christ himself. He's the measuring stick. So anyone who doesn't measure up to Jesus falls short of the standard. We're all sinners. We don't measure up to that standard of perfection. Jesus never thought, uh, never said, or, or never did anything that was inconsistent with the holy nature of God, contrary to the nature and will of God. And of course, we have all done that. We have done things contrary. So we're all sinners. We've all missed the mark. So together, the two words cover the positive and negative or active and passive aspects of human wrongdoing. And so in looking at these words, we see that before God, we are both failures and rebels. We're both. We're not simply just failures. We're not just, oh, I'm just a bad shot. You know, I, I really wanted to hit the mark, but I just can't seem to hit it. I, I missed it. We are that, but we're more than that. We're rebels as well. We're transgressors. We're trespassers. We, we see the boundary and we intentionally cross over it. And as a result of that, Paul says we are dead. So we are dead in our trespasses and sins. Now, what does he mean when he speaks of us being dead? Well, he's talking about spiritual death. And spiritual death can be defined this way. Spiritual death is separation from God. So it's possible to be very much alive in the physical sense, in the intellectual sense or the emotional sense, but in actuality from God's standpoint to be dead. And this is where the whole human race is dead in trespasses and sins, separated from God. Remember, we read there in the 59th chapter of Isaiah, God says, my, my ear is not heavy or, or 
plugged that I cannot hear you, and my arm is not shortened that I cannot save you, but your sins have separated us. That's what sin does. It separates us from God, and that is what it means to be dead in sin. And this is true. Think about it as you look around at people. Men, by nature, are blind to the glory of Jesus Christ. People today in the culture, we, talk, we hear the name of Jesus from people, but we rarely hear it in a way that glorifies him, right? And, and man is blind. Sometimes I'll hear a person, a person say Jesus in, a, in the sense of using his name as sort of a uh, curse word sometimes, or sometimes people just use it as a filler. And you think, wow, this is the name above every name. This is the name that everyone is going to bow before. This is the name that if uttered in sincerity and, and truth saves a person eternally. But people are clueless when it comes to that. Men by nature are blind to the glory of Christ, deaf to the voice of the Holy Spirit. They have no love for God, no sensitive awareness of his personal reality, no longing for fellowship with him or his people. They are as unresponsive to him as a corpse. This is the way it is in the world, isn't it? No love for God. Now, someone would protest and say, oh, that's not true. Somebody might say, well, I really love God. I do. But you know what you find There are people that would say that. There are people that would disagree and argue. But you find when you ask them to define God, it's a God that they have invented. It's a God that they've conjured up in their own imagination. When you start talking to them about the God who's revealed himself in the pages of the Bible, they will say, oh, no, I don't believe in that God. I don't believe in a God that's going to judge anybody. I don't believe in a God that's going to hold anybody accountable for their sin and nowadays, it's, I don't believe in a God that's going to tell me anything that I don't want to hear. So you see, they say they love God. They say they believe in God. But it's not the true God. It's an imaginary God. Because man by nature has no love for God. No matter how physically fit or mentally astute or emotionally vibrant a person might be, those who are without Christ are dead while they live. The basic tragedy of fallen human existence is that people who were created by God and for God are now living without him. That's the great tragedy. We were created by God. We were created to be in communion with him, but we live our lives separated from him. This is where all of us were and where most still are. So this is where Paul starts. He's talking, remember, bigger picture, he's talking about the grace of God and the glory of God's grace, but he wants to remind us of where we came from. And so he then shows us how that spiritual death worked itself out into our daily living experience. And notice what he says here, in which you once walked following the course of this world, Following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, 
And then he says, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind. And so he refers to three things here, the world, the devil, and the flesh. So how, how did this, this state work itself out? How was this manifested in our lives? Well, following the course of the world. Now, you know, if you've been a Christian for some time, you know, oftentimes when we speak of the world, we're speaking of it in a negative fashion. But when we're, when we're doing that, what are we talking about? Are we talking about the planet itself? Are we talking about nature itself? Are we talking about uh, people in general? No, when we speak of the world in that negative sense, or when the Bible speaks of it in the negative sense, it's really referring to society organized without reference to God. That's what the world is. It's people living without regard to God, the ways of God or the will of God. So when, when Paul says here that we were walking according to the course of this world, we were following the course of the world, one translation puts it this way, we were drifting along the stream of this world's ideas of living. And that's true, really, isn't it? Of each and every one of us. I can certainly attest that it was true about me. I lived my life without reference to God for many, many years. No reference to God, no real thinking about him, no interest in the things of God. I didn't love him. I didn't seek him. I didn't concern myself with how he might want me to live. I didn't ever think to praise him. I never thought to show any gratitude toward him. I thought nothing of breathing his air and enjoying his world and then turning around and violating his commands and using his name in vain. In the end, I, looking back now, realized that I loved and worshiped myself. And so did you. And so does everyone. This is, this is human nature. This is the way it is. And this is the way it is for everyone following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. This is a reference to the devil. This is a reference to Satan. Now, of course, some people today would say, are you kidding me? Are you joking? You're talking about a devil? You're talking about Satan in the 21st century? Yes, we are. He's alive and well. And he is the one who's leading the parade. He's the one who's leading this march in opposition to God. And this is where the masses are. They're following the prince of the power of the air. He is the one who is directing the course of this world. The word prince means ruler. He is the ruler of uh, the, the powers of the air. The, the powers of the air are references to evil spirits. And so 
the Bible teaches that this world and the men and women in this world are being influenced in their rebellion against God by these evil spirits. As we read here, this is the spirit of Satan is the spirit is, that is working presently in the, the sons and daughters of disobedience. So we're following the course of the world that uh, society that's organized without reference to God, we're being led in this march by Satan himself. These evil spirits whose domain is somehow in the atmosphere, they exercise varying degrees of control over the nations. Varying degrees of control over the nations. You would be hard-pressed to find a single government on the face of the earth that is not at its core antichrist. And not just today, but this is the way it has always been. And it's been the case in our nation as well. Now, we like to talk about the United States as being a Christian nation. We talk about getting back to the values of our founding fathers and so forth. But what we need to understand is that our founding fathers, most of them, they were interested in Christian morality because they believed that morality was healthy for the nation. And they believed that the Bible had a very good moral plan. So they greatly encouraged the reading of the Bible and the application of the Bible to one's life in order to have a moral and ethical society. But you find in their writings, when it came down to the real root and the core of the Christian faith, like the person of Christ and the idea of people being dead in their trespasses and sins and the idea of the necessity of the blood of Christ being shed as an atonement for our sin and Jesus rising from the dead, you find that they were radically opposed to those deep doctrines of the Christian faith. They were very much in favor of the, the moral and ethical teachings of Christianity, but they were very much against the, the deeper, more theological ideas that the morals and the ethics spring from. They did not believe in the deity of Christ. They did not believe that he was God manifested in the flesh. They did not like the idea that he died vicariously in our place for our sins. They opposed that. But, it, but it's true of, of all nations because this is what's in the heart of man. You see, people will be okay sometimes with certain t- uh, forms of morality. And they will agree that a person ought to live a certain life. And of course, many religions teach a moral and ethical system that is similar to what we find in the Bible. But the rub, the real, the, the real conflict occurs when you get down to things like this, when you get down to the issue of sin and everyone being a sinner and everyone being desperately in need of the grace of God and no one being able to save themselves through their morality or through their good works, that's where you find the conflict. But then Paul adds one more thing to the world and the devil, the flesh. 
And so he says here, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Lived in the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires. Again, this is who we are naturally. My, my mind, my body's under the control of my mind. It's under the control of my, my passions and my desires. And, and there comes a certain point where we just, whatever those passions dictate, the body goes in that direction. Whatever the mind can conceive of, the body follows along under the direction of the mind. And, and in many places in the New Testament, we have given to us a various descriptions, actually, of what the life of the flesh looks like. And it's ugly. It's very, very ugly. Galatians 5, uh, 1 Corinthians 6, uh, Ephesians 5 here. We have these, these pictures to us, uh, given to us, of the life of the flesh. What is it like? Well, sexual immorality is at the top of the list. Sexual immorality. And when I say at the top of the list, not meaning it's the, it's the, the worst of things. It just generally is, finds itself up there at the top. There, there's no one, it's, it's not, they're never laid out in the degree of the sin, like the worst at the top, and then you get down. As far as the biblical presentation goes, we're, we're talking about all of these things are really in the same category. They're all in that, that same thing of, of manifestations of the flesh, the flesh which is in opposition to God. So sexual immorality, the Greek word here is a very inclusive word, and it just, it sort of takes everything, and it brings it under this one word. The Greek word is porneia. And, of course, you, the word sounds familiar. It's where we get the word pornographic from. And, but yet, when we think of pornographic, we, we have one thing in our minds, but the word's broader than that. And so it's more correctly translated sexual immorality because it refers to all sexual activity outside of what God has ordained. And what God has ordained is the sexual relationship is to be experienced between a, uh, a husband and a wife, a heterosexual married couple. In that context, uh, you can have all the sex you want, but outside of that, anywhere outside of that, you, you come into the realm of sexual immorality. So the, the flesh, sexual immorality, impurity, the word impurity here has a sexual connotation to it. And then in Galatians, uh, the word that Paul uses in the Greek is translated into English by the word debauchery, debauchery. If you look in the Webster Dictionary for a definition on debauchery, it pretty much says sex, drugs, and rock and roll. They left out the rock and roll part, but they could have inserted it because that's the picture. The picture is illicit sex, alcohol, drugs, party lifestyle. That's, that's what debauchery is describing. And that's pretty much... The, the way the culture has been, hasn't it? For a long, long time now, debauchery. But then he goes on in, in the manifestations of the flesh, idolatry, witchcraft, 
hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, wars, divisions, envy, drunkenness, theft, slander, greed, gossip, bitterness, rage, anger, malice, murder. All of these things are in the same category. What is he describing? He's describing humanity. He's describing people. And you see, we might say, well, look, I've, I've not been sexually immoral. I'm, I'm not one of those people given over to debauchery. I don't have any idols erected in my home. I'm not involved in any form of witchcraft. Okay, great. What about hatred? Do you ever hate anybody? What about jealousy? What about fits of rage? What about selfish ambition, envy, theft, slander, greed, gossip, bitterness? See, the, this is the flesh. And we have to admit, right, this is who we are. This is who all of us are. This is humanity. But it doesn't stop there because it also includes pride and it includes things like pride of intellect, pride of ancestry, pride of race, pride of religion, pride of morality. The interesting thing about this to me is that Paul makes sure to include himself in this list and his people, the Jews. You see, because as a Pharisee, he never would have done that. As a Pharisee, he would have seen himself and his people as separate from these pagan Gentiles who were given over to sin. He would have seen himself as not in that same group, but as somebody who has had an encounter with Christ and a life-transforming encounter, he knows that he was there as well. He wasn't an idolater, obviously, because that was radically against Judaism. He wasn't involved in witchcraft or sexual immorality, but he had a tremendous amount of pride in his ancestry. He had pride in his race. He had pride in his religion. He had pride in his morality. So when he's talking about the condition he includes himself along with everybody else. This is the way people are. It's just the truth about us. And the truth sometimes painful. You know, it's amazing. You can, you can see people that in so many areas, externally, they seem to have it together. And, and it's, it's hard to see Sometimes if you're at a distance, it's hard to see that there is any sin in their life. But when you get up close and personal, you start to see little things in people's hearts. My wife is obsessed with watching programs that have, she likes mystery stuff. So she watches 48 hours. She watches all of these. She finds all of these crazy things where it's, it's all a CSI stuff or cold case stuff. It it's all has to do with, um, you know, tracking down murderers usually. And um, I'm serious. I mean, it's an obsession. It's like, and so I get sucked into watching them with her sometimes. I'll be, I'll be standing there criticizing her for it. And then as you're as you're kind of listening and observing, you, you're getting sucked in. But you know, the, mo the more I watch these things with her, it's just so fascinating. It's so amazing you know, to see, like, for example, to see a 70-year-old lady who's just like the, the perfect little grandma. But then she, she's mad at her husband, and she's worried that she's not going to get enough money, so she decides to have her grandson kill him. 
and she arranges for all this to happen with her daughter. And I mean, there's like hundreds of these stories or, or the pastor who, who just decides he's having an affair and he doesn't want to blow his cover and he doesn't want people to know he's having an affair. So what is he going to do? Instead of just coming home and saying, I'm leaving you and I'm leaving the ministry, he kills his wife. It's true. This kind of stuff happens all the time. And hey, just go to 48 hours. Check it out. You can. <laughs> and Cheryl could give you a, a list of 10 other uh, programs that you could watch on it. But I always marvel. I, and, and then the crazy thing about it, too, is the, the, the guilty ones, the culprits, they sit in the courtroom crying for their poor spouse that was murdered. They murdered them, but they're pretending like they didn't. And they're lying through their teeth. You think, oh, wow, this is human nature. This is how we are. And, and all of us, obviously, we, all of us don't go out and murder people. But remember, Jesus said, if you have hatred in your heart for a person, as far as God's concerned, you have murdered them. And who among us has not hated somebody at one time or another? We all have. And as a result of all of this, where do we find ourselves? We find ourselves in this position that Paul tells us here as being the children of wrath. The children of wrath. Now, there's probably nothing more upsetting to the secular mind than the idea that God is a God who will judge people and that God is a God of wrath. And to some degree, we can understand it a little bit because people's idea of what it means for God to be a God of wrath quite often is not a biblically accurate idea. Uh, some people, when they think of God's wrath, they think of it like man's wrath. They think that God is, a, is an ill-tempered being, that he might uh, fly off the handle at any moment. But when we're talking about God and his wrath, we're talking about the wrath of God, we're not talking about anything like that. God's wrath is, uh, it's neither spite nor malice nor animosity nor revenge. It is never arbitrary since it is the divine reaction to only one situation, namely evil. Therefore, it is entirely predictable See, what people usually think of, because they've, they've got some idea of some out-of-control, ill-tempered, unpredictable kind of a person, they think of God as being like that, though that, that's not the case. God's wrath is entirely predictable. It is never subject to mood, whim, or caprice because it is rooted in God's personal, righteous, constant hostility to evil his settled refusal to compromise with it and his resolve instead to condemn it. Now, this is something that our generation of people need to get and they need to get it badly. God does not change his standards for anybody. God is, in this regard, there is absolutely zero flexibility. So you, you can think anything you want, but it's never gonna change what God has declared in his word. What God says is wrong will always be wrong. It will never, it doesn't matter what the culture says. It doesn't matter what we supposedly discovered about people that we didn't previously know. 
What God says is wrong is wrong, and those who persist in wrongdoing will come under the judgment of God. God's wrath is predictable. It is directed toward evil. And evil is what God says is evil, not what we determine to be evil. Now, this idea of God's wrath, as I said, it's, it's very, very unacceptable, especially to the modern mind. But it's not only a reality that God does and will express wrath, but the reality is all of us by nature are children of wrath, which means that we are under the wrath of God. We are destined for his judgment by nature. In Romans chapter one, Paul actually says that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So God's wrath is being revealed and it will be revealed in the future. Against what? All ungodliness and all unrighteousness. What's ungodliness? Ungodliness is any failure to live according to who God is and what he's like in his holiness. What's unrighteousness? Any failure to live consistently with what God says is uh, true about how we relate to one another as people. So his wrath is against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth. You see, this is what we do. We suppress the truth. We know that things are wrong, but we, we push back that, that sense of of guilt over it or that sense of conviction. And we try to convince ourselves that, no, this is okay. This isn't wrong. This is all right. But God's wrath is revealed against that. Now, again, we're all in the same predicament. Remember Paul's point here. Paul's point here isn't so much to talk about this as to use this as the backdrop for talking about God's grace. But he wants us to understand our true condition of where we were. I I think of how God reminded the children of Israel many centuries after he had originally brought them out of Egypt, but he painted a picture through the prophet Ezekiel. And he said, "When, when I found you, you were like a, a miscarried child, an aborted child on the side of the road, wallowing in your own blood and ready to expire. And I took you and I cleansed you and I wrapped you up and cared for you and nurtured you and blessed you and brought you to this place. And then, of course, with the nation, they revolted against him and he was building his case there. But that's the same with us. That's where we are And the marvel of it all is Paul having described our condition, he then adds these words, but God, but God. Now think of it. Put yourself in a place, if you can, of trying to express your love and concern and care for for somebody who is completely resisting that, revolting against it, rebelling against it, spitting in your face, cussing at you, get away from me, 
running from you, hiding from you, slandering you. That's us. That's humanity. That's what we're doing to God. So the world is doing to God. But what is God doing? God is pursuing. He doesn't stop pursuing. That's the amazing thing. But God, this is who we are, this dark, bleak, wretched picture. But God, who is great in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were in that state, even when we were in that state, he didn't leave us alone. We were saying, leave me alone. Quit bothering me, God. I don't want to have anything to do with you. I don't care about your commandments. Oh, how many people have been in that very place? But he wouldn't leave them alone. He wouldn't leave you alone. He was there persisting. He sought us when we were fleeing, when we were hiding. He allowed us to see our true state. He broke through. He unsettled our souls. He showed us our true condition. You know, the problem is, this is, this is who we are. We've been looking at it, reading it. But the problem is we don't see it ourselves, do we? Isn't it funny how we can see things in other people that we cannot see in ourselves? We, we can look at certain people and just, oh, that is so bad. I can't believe they behave like that. I can't believe they talk to people like that. <clears throat> I can't, you know, and, and then come to find out we do the same thing, but we don't see it. That's just the way it is. We, we have a blindness to our own condition. But God, in his patience, instead of judging us, instead of <coughs> pouring his wrath upon us, what does he do? He works on us to, to get us to see our true state. He unsettles our souls. We start to, to feel that something isn't right. We start to get little glimpses of our, our desperate need for being rescued, for being delivered. He woos us with his love. Again, think about it on a human level. Somebody who, who just continues to love you despite all of your efforts to do everything you can to, to just stop loving me, stop pursuing me, stop trying to help me. That's us. But God, he keeps going. He keeps pressing in. Why? Why is he doing that? Because of his great love. It's because of the great love that he has for us. And so he brings us to that place. He woos us. And then he extended his saving hand of grace to us. He forgave our trespasses and sins. And he made us his own dear children. That's the mind-boggling thing. Rebels. You know, with rebels, think of it with rebels. And I'm not just talking about like a rebel in the sense of maybe one of your teenage kids who's living in rebellion. But think of those who rebel against like a king, for example. And their, their efforts are to overthrow the king. Insurgents, they want to overthrow existing governments, revolutionaries. They want to overthrow the status quo. 
and they do everything they can, they, they do to, to try to accomplish that end. Murder, doesn't matter, whatever. We're gonna do it. And that, that's, that's the picture of us. Now, you could understand if a king says, okay, the, the rebels, we've, we've talked some sense into them. They're no longer gonna revolt and we're gonna forgive their former rebellion and we're gonna allow them certain privileges of the kingdom and so forth. And okay, that's the end of that. Okay, well, that would be one thing and that would be pretty amazing in and of itself. But let's just say the king says, well, the rebels, you know, I actually, let's bring them into the family. Let's make them part of the family. Let's sit them down at the dinner table with us. Let's share the inheritance. Let's share the wealth. Let's give them, all, let's give them the kingdom to enjoy with us. Well, that's something that you would never see. But that's what God's done. That's what God's done. We who were at one time enemies. Now listen, in our present cultural situation, we have such a victim mentality in our culture that even people in churches, instead of seeing themselves as, as they really were, they see themselves more as victims of the devil and sin. No, listen, we were com complicit with the devil. We were not simply victims. We were enemies and alienated from God by our wicked works. But what has he done? He's not only forgiven us, but he's made us his dear children. That is the astounding thing. He's not just simply said, okay, I'm not gonna kill you. I'm not gonna put you in prison. I'm gonna you know, let you live on your land out there outside the city, but you ever mess up again, we'll wipe you out. He, he hasn't done that. He said, come on and join the family. Become part of the family. Sit at my table with me. Share in my wealth and my glory. That's what Christ has done for us. He's taken us from being rebels and he's made us his dear children. And he's done it all through his love. He persevered. He kept the pressure on, that pressure born out of his love for us. The hound of heaven tracked us down. He wouldn't let us go. Oh, the love that would not let us go. That's what it is. This great love that would not let us go. As I was finishing the preparation last night, I was thinking of the words to the song that Chelsea sang when she was with us on Easter. What wondrous love is this, is the title of the song. And it's, it's really true when you think about it. I'm gonna close with the words to that song, at least some of them. What wondrous love is this, O my soul? What wondrous love is this, O my soul? What wondrous love is this that caused the Lord of bliss to bear the dreadful curse for my soul, for my soul. To bear the dreadful curse for my soul. That's what he did. He bore the curse for us. What wondrous love. But then it goes on. When I was sinking down, sinking down. When I was sinking down. When I was sinking down beneath God's righteous frown. That was us, children of wrath. Sinking down into the pit. Under his righteous frown, Christ laid aside his crown for my soul, for my soul. Christ laid aside his crown for my soul. And then the last stanza, 
And when from death I'm free, I'll sing on, I'll sing on. And when from death I'm free, I'll sing on. And when from death I'm free, I'll sing his love for me. And through eternity, I'll sing on, I'll sing on. And through eternity, I'll sing on. We can sing on because we've been made free. We're free from death. You who were dead, we who were dead in trespasses and sins, he has made alive together with Christ. So you see, Paul's whole objective here is to get us to see how amazing God's love is for us, that we would then give the only reasonable response of just living a life of absolute praise and thankfulness and dedication, all born out of love for the one who loved us first. God help us to get it and to respond to it. Lord, thank you for your unspeakable love. Lord, it really is. It is deeper and wider and higher than anything that we could even begin to imagine. And Lord, the deep love that we've had at times for one another and for people we've cared about Lord, in its most intense form, it pales in comparison to your love. The love that put up with so much, the love that would not let us go, despite all of our efforts to break free from you and run from you and hide from you and remain separated from you. Lord, that you pursued us you pursued us to death. And oh, how we thank you for that. Lord, may we just, Lord, help our hearts to respond. Help us, Lord, to grasp the love in such a way that we would reciprocate that love back to you.